Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietling. So I was in Las Vegas this past weekend. Did you lose your shirt? No, actually, I still have my shirt. I'll tell you what, I won $12. It cost me $15 to win that $12. (laughs) And that's 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 the extent of my bet. That's new math, right? That's that's what that is. That's U.S. government math. Okay, all right. You know, the government accounting office taught me that. Are they the same people handling all the crash retrieval information? So how was this conference? This is the fourth annual crash retrieval conference, and Ryan Wood sponsored it. They had about 300 people there, which was up from 200 people last year. So the crowd got better. Uh And lots of interesting speakers. Stanton Friedman gave his usual spiel. It was really good, really entertaining. And I heard most of it. I had a few business meetings, of course, with regard to the radio show, so I couldn't hear it all. I have to tell you, though, the banquet was fabulous. The food was good. The food was good. Normally, you have rubber chicken at these events. They had a buffet. Right. But how was is, how is the conference? Well, that's the problem. A lot of the speeches are same old, same old. That You get a little right. bit every year. It's kind of appealing to the true believers, the people who are already interested mm-hmm. in the subject and they want to have their belief system reinforced. And I think that's the problem with these kinds of events. Not that I wouldn't want to go again or anything, because it is fun and the speakers were presented in a good fashion, but I didn't perceive here that I learned anything I didn't know before going in there. No new cases mentioned, no new information. Well, there is a potential investigation that Ryan Wood alluded to when he was on our show, talking about a possible interesting crash situation, but he hasn't really delivered a lot more information. He's still investigating it, so this might be something we're going to hear about in little bits and pieces over the next year. So we'll have to see what happens. You know what's so ironic about this? You do some some research, you read a little bit, you read a lot, and you realize that there are so many reported cases, and all of the evidence, for the most part, is either witness testimony, circumstantial, a lot of it is dubious. It's very frustrating because even if you have a new case, I, I suspect it really ends up being a situation where the people who are believers, like you just said, they eat the stuff up. The skeptics say, well, you still don't have anything solid. This is still in the realm of the improbable, so we're going to ignore it. The polarization of this field might be its undoing, ultimately. It's, it's sad because, I, and I was talking with a friend about this the other day, who, who is a very hardcore skeptic, and I said to him that, you know, if 2% of all of this stuff ends up being true. And that's the best I think any of us can hope for, Gene, in any of the paranormal realms. That's right. 2%, right? Sure. If 2% of it's true, this is definitely something to talk about. Why can't we all agree that perhaps 2% of this could be true? Let's focus on that 2%. And I, I was kind of hoping you would tell me that somebody at this conference would make this point. Certainly the information they presented is probably in large part valid, but it comes up to being the cases that most people have heard about already. It's a reinforcement rather than a reinvention or a revolution. The other thing that concerned me a lot, and I met some very nice people there, but most or all of them were baby boomers, okay? 
And we're talking about the over 50, mm-hmm. 55 set. I mean, there were mm-hmm. some people who were in their 40s, but it didn't attract any young people. Now, maybe it's because yeah. it's not a cheap conference. To attend all three days, we're talking about $160. And I'm not saying it's not worth $160. The problem is that maybe younger people aren't interested in paying that amount of money for that kind of session. Actually, but, I would expect it to be more. That's actually not that bad. No, and that, the banquet go. was more money. The hotel was something like 100 $10 with tax. And the hotel accommodations were really good, by the way. They were fabulous. So we had a, a pleasant time. And I enjoyed, as I said, Stan Friedman, Richard Dolan was there, and he had a pleasant session. And a gentleman was talking about the Flatwoods Monster, and maybe we have a new slant on that, and we'll have to pursue that in a future show. Also, I talked for about an hour with Nick Redfern. He's the author uh. of several books on UFOs and the power normal and he has a couple of interesting things to say and i captured him on tape so we'll hear from him later in the show but coming up next on the powercast we have stephen broadbent of realityuncovered.com and he says he and his colleagues have really exposed the source the real source behind <laughs> project serpo yep and that's coming and, up uh, next on the powercast i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com. Click on the C-Crane sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Stephen, how did you get to start this website of yours that covers UFOs and other subjects? It was back in January, okay. long after Serpo had started. Um, I was on the Above Top Secret website, just as a member, uh, following the story there, following the discussion there. Um, and through that, I got... Uh, to meet Ryan Doobie, who was my co-admin at Reality Uncovered, and Sean O'Connolly, uh, and a few other people. Uh, yeah, we, um, we did a, a summary of all the Project Serpo posts to date at Above Top Secret, because they had a huge thread there, I think well over 5,000 posts. Hmm. Then through that, I met Ryan Doobie, and we used to chat at night you know, using Skype or MSN. Uh, we looked 
further into it, uh, investigating the story, I got quite close at the time to Bill Ryan. I offered to help him with his website and look through his logs um, because he was suspicious that the DIA and some other agencies were, were looking at his website and he didn't know how to read the logs. Uh, so I offered to do that for him. As a result of that, we got closer to the story, myself and Ryan. And it just went from there, really. Now, when you say you got closer to the story, were you seeing any documents the rest of us weren't seeing, or were you just getting a better look not at... at... Sorry, uh, not at the beginning. Right. Um, but we did come to see, well, a lot of documents that the public weren't seeing. The original emails, uh, for one thing, from Request Anom Anonymous that turned out to be uh, Sylvester McCoglin, obviously the pseudonym. Let's kind of back up on this. Okay. Backtrack on yes. this, yeah. Yes, okay. So Reality Uncovered was founded in large part to cover the project Serpo situation. That came afterwards, though. The actual website came after. I'd uh, registered the website last year, and it was um, it was really just to look at different uh, different subjects to do with reality. The simulation argument, for one, I was interested in. I wanted to look at that. The holographic universe uh, theory. Uh, and as it turned out, I did the, the format of the website and just left it. I never used it. I suppose I was looking at Project Serpo uh, too much. I didn't actually do anything. I created a forum which just sat there, had no members or anything like that. I just um, did it to see if I could do it, just messing about with uh, the HTML and what have you, and PHP. And myself and Ryan, uh, we were chatting quite a lot. We ended up on a different forum, the Open Minds Forum, uh, where they were also looking at the Project Serpo story. I'm actually jumping quite quite far ahead here. The key thing with um, getting close to the actual story was discovering the name of Request Anonymous and the email address he was using. That was the crucial thing to get close to all of this. So uh, this is I the original source of the emails that Bill Ryan was getting? That's right, yeah. All right. No, sorry, Victor, what Victor was getting. Oh, Victor. Okay, Victor Martinez who maintains a very large mailing list for people interested in the UFO topic. In fact, his list is sort of like the, the who's who of people who are sort of on the inside of looking at or participating in the UFO research field, for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that. Yeah, I wouldn't actually agree that it's a who's who. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people in the ufology field who are not on that list. Okay. A hell of a lot of people who are not on that list. <laughs> I know some people have been asked to take been, be taken off that list. So That's right. Yeah, many people yeah. have. Yeah. I didn't have to ask. I was taken off um, as a gift, I suppose, from Victor. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Stephen Broadbent, and he is one of the people behind the realityuncovered.com website. And if you go there, you're going to find some fascinating bits of information, a large part of the coverage being about, of course, Project Serpo. Now, listeners to the PowerCast will recall that we had Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy on the show a few months back talking about it. At that point, you know, we were just exploring, getting acquainted with it. Later on, I began to have some theories of my own. And before I do that, and before I express my own theories, Stephen, I'm more interested in what you found out. So assembling this ton of information, which is enough to get you dizzy, can we go from yeah. kind of A, B, C, D, what particular pieces of information came to light about Serpo? Well, to say the first thing I found was the, the name Request Anonymous used, along with the email address. And at that time, uh, the group of people that had assembled from 
um, above top secret to do with the Project Serpo summary. Um, there was, I think originally it was, it was eight, maybe nine people, but four of us became quite close online friends uh, discussing uh, Project Serpo for the most part. And I discovered this piece of information and disclosed it to these other three and we came up with a plan on how to use that information to get more information from the actual source, which at that time was Victor Martinez and Bill Ryan, because by this time Bill Ryan was receiving the information. Victor stopped receiving the information, I think it was in December, and in January Bill Ryan started receiving the information. And the, the name and email address I discovered was the guy who was sending the information to Victor was using. He obviously blanked that out, called it Request Anonymous, and didn't disclose any of the other details. And it was from getting that information that we was able to garner a lot more information from Victor with a dastardly plan. Can we get down to some specifics later, Stephen? I mean, what, what did you find about this person? What was the deal with the source of these postings? In How do you mean? Well, who was it? Well, ultimately, who the person was was Rick Doty. Okay. But it, it took a while to actually get to that position. Okay, well, now having framed that, and we've heard things about Rick Doty in the past that haven't been too savory. And, mm. okay, now that he's been engaged in government disinformation and all that. But before we try to evaluate what he is and everything like that, tell me the path from anonymous to Rick Doty. How did we get there? We set up a plan uh, because Victor was under the impression that his anonymous had left him and was now in touch with Bill Ryan. So using the, the name that we knew anonymous used and the email address, we created a new email account. Uh, request anonymous was using a Lycos account, um, the Wizard of Zin at Lycos.com. Mm -hmm. And so we created a Yahoo account, uh, the Wizard of Zin at Yahoo.com. Uh, with the same name, Sylvester McCoglin. And then one of the guys used that information and bluffed his way uh, into Victor Martinez's uh, trust. And Victor fell for it hook, line, and sinker. He thought his anonymous was back in touch and Bill was dealing with a, with a fake anonymous. He had no idea at the time that he was actually dealing with the fake anonymous. Gotcha. Whoa. And then we used that information uh, to get Victor. I mean, I must admit, what we wanted to see was the original email that Sylvester McCoglin had sent so we could look at the, the headers of the email, basically, and any other information that Victor might have. We didn't for one second think it would be successful, but within a few days, Victor had sent reams and reams of emails to the fake anonymous account, including the original email. The rest of them he'd deleted. Uh, but that that he kept, he, he sent to the Yahoo account. He was uh, happy as Larry. He thought his anonymous had come back, mm. and it was just it was just a series of bluffs making Victor believe that his anonymous had come back um, in an attempt to get as much information out of him as possible. Because we knew something fishy was going on. I knew that from my discussions with Bill. We'd suspected Rick Doty from well not from the very start but very very early on and from talking with Bill it was becoming pretty clear it must be Rick Doty even though he wasn't admitting it as such at that time he did admit it later but at that time uh, he didn't he did uh, he admitted he was receiving the information from Rick not uh, that Rick okay. was anonymous okay right. okay I just want to clarify that okay. which was a contradiction in itself yeah but uh, that's what that's what he told me and Ryan um, so we got access to the original email uh, the 
IP information in that email contained in the headers confirmed that it pointed to Rick based on other emails that we'd had from Rick. And also the fact that Victor and another person had done their own investigation into where these emails were coming from. And he himself had concluded that it was coming from Rick, uh, including the emails received from um, Paul McGovern. They were all coming from uh, Rick Doty's IP address. I'll tell you what, let's go into that in more detail in a moment. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're yeah. in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Stephen Broadbent, one of the people behind the website called realityuncovered.com. And if you go to realityuncovered.com, you'll see their investigation of the Project Serpo incident. So, okay, so checking the IP address, you match it up with Rick Doty. Now, for those who don't understand how this works, and for those who maybe haven't seen them do this on Law and Order or CSI or something like that, exactly how does an IP number help you find the person behind an email? When you log on to your internet account, um, be it with AOL, I'm stuck for, um, for American ISPs here. Well, whoever, Earth, AOL, MSN, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right. Rick Doty was using Quest. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, When you actually either dial up or log on or whatever, uh, you're assigned an IP address. It's usually dynamic in that the IP address can change um, within a certain time frame. Sometimes it it can stay fixed uh, for a month, a couple of months. Sometimes it will change daily. Mine, for example, changes every time I log on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's always within the same range of numbers. It's not always an identical number, but the, the range of numbers will always be the same, identifying it to the ISP that I use. And every everyone who logs onto the internet receives a unique IP address, um, and it's basically an identifier for that particular computer that has logged onto the internet. And when you send an email, especially when you send an email using a web-based email client like Lycos or Yahoo or MSN Hotmail. In the headers, that's the information contained in the email that has all the sender information. It'll have your name in there. Right. Uh, it'll have your organization in there. It also inserts the IP address. Now, with Lycos and Hotmail and Yahoo, it inserts the IP address of your physical machine, of your actual computer. Because when you click send on the email, it goes through, for example, Lycos's email servers. Uh, on its way to the recipient. And what Lycos will do, I'm using Lycos because that's what Sylvester McCoglin, the original um, anonymous, uh, was using at the time. It will insert the IP address of the person who sent the email, in this case, Rick Doty. His physical IP address, his physical number will be inserted into that email, along with however many email servers the email goes through on its way to the recipient. I think in Lycos's case, it's three. It's, it's two or three email servers. So you'll end up having um, four, a uh, minimum three, but certainly four IP addresses in there. And if you actually look at the header of an email, which you can do with any client, it will say something along the lines of um, X originating IP. Right. In most cases, I mean, these can be faked. These haven't been faked, and there are ways of, of telling if something's been faked or not. And it's very, very difficult to fake if you're using a web-based client in the first place, um, because Lycos's servers pick up from where that email is coming from, from where it's being sent, the actual physical location. And that physical location was Rick Doty's IP address. And I think the IP address 
inserted after that one is the first email server it passes through uh, that Lycos use on its way to the... Uh, All right, so, so basically, region. Stephen, what we're talking about is that the original source for all of these original postings is Rick Doty, who... Definitely, yeah. So he's basically a guy who is spreading this stuff. He has sort of a sordid history yeah. in the UFO field. I mean, you know, he, he's been part of what are clearly disinformation campaigns in the past. Wouldn't it be fair to say that anything coming out of this guy at this point is completely tainted? Um, it would be fair to say that. I mean, the people who believe he's actually part of disclosure are saying he's, he's been used for that very purpose because he's tainted, that if it is discovered he is the source, then they can roll out the old plausible deniability statement that they're, they're quite fond of using. Now, you've looked at the Serpo documents. Gene and I have read over most of this stuff. We've discovered a number of inconsistencies. We've discovered a number of problems. There's tons Even, of inconsistencies. Tons of, oh, yes. Tons of problems. Even down to the writing style, which uh, it seems far less than what an actual science crew would do yeah, if they actually right. had the opportunity of going to another planet. So <laughs> why are people so focused on this? Why are people so interested in these, document, in these documents? I think it's, um, it's, it's people's desire to believe that there's something out there. Well, and they're, but they're willing to suspend disbelief. That's another phrase that Bill Ryans are quite fond of using. Mm -hmm. um, in order to just look at the idea, I suppose, and see the idea as being, yeah, it could be true. Whereas when you look at everything objectively, then it's, it's nonsense, basically. It's, it, it just doesn't make any sense. None of it does. So let's talk about motivation. What, what is motivating these people? Is, is Rick Doty expecting to make a living out of this? Is Bill Ryan going to write a book about Serpo and he's going to sell it to all 15 people who are going to buy it? I, I, I'm sometimes at a loss to understand motivation for this. Why? You're not the takes, only one. Well, so what's your <laughs> thoughts about this? I mean, why do you think they're doing this? Um, it could be any number of reasons. It could be the the hoped-for fame and fortune angle. That's not really yeah. for me to say. Right. Um, maybe the hope that people will fall for it in great numbers, that in the future um, they can write books about it, they can make films about it, documentaries, that type of thing. But the problem with Serpo is it it's been relatively quickly nipped in the bud. It has been shown as having multiple problems. What were some of those problems that you specifically encountered that were just glaring to you? Uh, the fact that everything came from Rick Doty, for one thing. Right. Um, and then the people that's, that were supporting the story originally uh, on Victor's list, people like Paul McGovern. Um, there was another guy. I, I don't really want to say the, his surname because I'm not sure that's actually been mentioned publicly at all. Okay. But it was, it was basically guys who supported the original story that Anonymous was uh, sending to Victor. He had a number of people confirming, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. Uh, there is something to this story. I don't know. I have no idea how he, how he got this information, but it's basically true. All that type of thing. There was a, quite a lot of people confirming, like Gene Laskowski, Rick Doty, Paul McGovern, this guy called Herb and one or two others. But all of these people are the same person. They're all Rick Doty. All you have to do is read the emails to see that they are, they're all one person. I mean, the thing, I had a number of emails from Rick Doty from just after Serpo broke in Octo uh, October last year. And he's, he has a certain writing style. And when I saw the very first email on uh, the serpo.org website and then saw the email in its original form, to me, it was pretty clear that was Rick Doty. 
It was his writing style. He has a very specific writing style. It's as if he's, he's ticking off items in a list, um, very short and abrupt sentences. And the, the same goes for the Paul McGovern emails. They all sound like they're coming from the same person. That was before we had all of the IP header information confirming that they actually all come from the same person. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking with Stephen Broadbent of Reality Uncovered, and if you want to get in touch with us here at the Paracast, send your messages or a short MP3 file of up to 90 seconds to news at theparacast.com. Visit our message forums at theparacast.com, and we are talking about the website that Stephen Broadbent and his colleagues created called Reality Uncovered. Reality Uncovered has is engaged in what is now a nine and a half part investigation of Project Serpo, which was the alleged program involving an alien exchange between humans and extraterrestrials. The reason I say nine and a half because there's a part 4B. And so far, <laughs> Stephen has told us that former military officer Richard Doty, who has been attributed to the force behind some UFO disinformation over the years, is the source behind the anonymous postings of the Project Serpo project and pointing out various elements of information here that the email Emails come from his IP address, something that uh, Victor Martinez would not know because he uses web TV. He doesn't actually have a personal computer, so that's one reason why he wouldn't be able to discover this. But yeah, we're seeing... Victor did discover that. Right. Have he you did discover that. Oh, he told me. Yeah? Yeah. You can see out of his emails, it says web TV in them. I mean... No, that's, that's right, right, but um, Victor did discover that the, all the emails he was receiving from uh, Paul McGovern... Rick Doty and Sylvester McCoglin were all coming from the same person. Oh, he discovered this on his own? Really? Yeah, yeah. And what um, did he do then? He engaged the help of some other people in tracking down the, um, who was sending these emails. He, he forwarded them from his web TV account because he, he could not see uh, the actual header information. So he forwarded them to a number of people, and they saw where this was coming from and obviously believed whatever explanation Rick told them. I think what he said at the time was he was being framed. Somebody had hacked into his PC. Oh. Uh, it was something along those lines. It was, it was ludicrous in the extreme, but it was something along the lines of, yeah, the government have hacked into my PC to make it look like I'm sending these emails. Well, it's right. nonsense. And if you're using a web-based client, it's very, very difficult to forge. Well, in fact, it's, it's nearly impossible to forge. If he was sending an email from his own personal email client using, for example, Outlook or Eudora, 
uh, is normal email client, then it is quite easy to make it look like it's coming from somewhere else, mm -hmm. but not when you're using web-based email services because you'd have to you'd have to get into their computers also. You guys have put a lot of effort into sort of ripping this case apart, and it's pretty clear based on uh, again the stuff that Gene and I have read about this. It has always uh, seemed to us that. The Project Serpo thing is it's just its just nonsense. Now, the, yeah. the question, though, is, is there any kernel of truth to any of this? Because, again, I, I'm coming back to the motivation the core, issue. The core story. Right. Um, a lot of people keep talking about the core story. A lot of people well, think is that there will... a core story? What do you think? I personally think the actual core story is the fact that E.T. is out there, and that's it. That's and it. it's not based on anything physical. Um, a lot of the, the Serpos, for, for example, the Serpos story, a lot of it has to do with what happened, allegedly, what happened at Roswell. Mm -hmm. Roswell happened in 1947. Well, something happened in Roswell in 1947. Right. Then it was quickly cleared up, and the story was dead for over 30 years. No one knew about Roswell. That story resurfaced in 1978 when Stanton Friedman was contacted, and, that's, and the story has grown from there. You know, from 1978, the, the period between 1947 and 1978, there was nothing happening uh, with right. Roswell. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, something happens in 1978, and all these witnesses start coming forward, uh, and the story is born. And there was also a lot of other things happening in the 70s to do with remote viewing, those type of experiments at um, Stanford Research Institute. What we believe a reality uncovered is that something was discovered, or they thought they discovered something at this time that would lead them to believe that ET is real, based, just based simply on remote viewing experiments. Nothing physical, nothing tangible, uh, but giving these people at SRI the idea that yes, ET exists, ET is out there, and you know, it's either a threat or it's not a threat, that type of thing. And that's when after this, that's when all these um, all these stories of UFO crashes started to surface. Well, Why they did that, I'm I'm not so sure. Whether to create the mindset that yes, ET is ET is real, and look, they've, they've crashed a UFO at Roswell, and if you to believe some of the reports, they, they crash them on a monthly basis by the looks of things. Yeah, those spaceships I think are built by the lowest bidder. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. They're very, very unreliable. They're always failing. <laughs> well, now, now, hold on. Now, now, we know that there have been various well-documented UFO flaps uh, before the 1970s. There were yeah. also some, some pretty intense UFO flaps in the 70s as well. Um, you know, the, the issue of crashes, I mean, you know, there, there's stuff going all the way back to Aurora, Texas in 1897, and the jury's still out on that one as well. Um, mm. There are a lot of reasons to doubt a lot of this stuff, but I have to tell you that when you uh, speak to someone like Jesse Marcel Jr., who we had on our show, mm. it seemed to certainly to me that this is a guy who basically... I don't know that he's capable of uh, of telling a lot of lies. This seems like a really strange. Maybe he's lie. not telling a lie. Well, maybe so he's maybe he's telling the story how he remembers it. Right. But Jesse Marcel Jr. claims that he handled some material that he feels certain was from a very unusual source. Yeah. Now, how old was Jesse when he handled that? Well, he he was a uh, Gene. What was he? Eleven years old. Something like 11 or 12 years old. It seems that we all have our exposure to UFO-related mysteries at mm. that very young age. 
It could be. I mean, it, I'm not denying that it was probably something very strange that he'd seen and that he'd touched, but that would be the case um, for a number of things. Say, for example, it was um, a crashed weather balloon. Um, just the material from that weather balloon. I'm not saying it was a, a weather balloon, right, by the way. I'm right. just giving that as, a, as an example. Sure. Um, if he held some part of that material, not knowing what it was, then it would seem strange to an 11-year-old boy, not um, being exposed uh, to the world as an adult would be. Yes, well, but in this case, his father brought it home. Yeah. His father brought yeah. it home, and why would his father come there and say, look at this, if it was something that his father was familiar with? You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to get in touch with us, write us, news at theparacast.com. You can send us email or an MP3 audio file of up to 90 seconds. You're invited to visit our site, theparacast.com, where you can download previous episodes or participate in our message forums. And we've discussed Project Serpo there, but not to the extent that Stephen Broadbent has discussed it with his staff and dealt with it at the realityuncovered.com site. Go ahead, please. The question, of course, Stephen, that we're trying to figure out here is, is there a core story of Serpo? There are ETs out there. Yes, there is life out in the universe. There's probably a bunch of intelligent life in our galaxy. The question is, is any of this life visiting Earth? And does anyone on Earth know about it in terms of, for example, some part of the United States government having some amount of information, access to this technology, uh, have they retrieved crash disks? We've talked to people on the show who claim that there have been up to 70 crash disks over the last 60, 70 years. Do we assume for a moment, and this is the, the hard question around this, is we, we have to assume that some amount of this is nonsense, and that's just a given. But if yeah. 1% of this stuff is for real, just 1%, then we definitely have something to talk about. Do you think 1% of what's in the Serpo documentation is real, or is it all 100% bogus? Um, at the moment, I would say it's 100% bogus. Mm -hmm. With talking with the people involved, um, a lot of the people behind right. the scenes who have been looking at this. Yeah, definitely I would say it's 100% bogus. I don't just mean uh, Rick Doty. I mean a lot of the other people who have been involved, right. uh, the so-called team of five, uh, for example. Okay, the team of five. Who is the team of five? Right, the team of five are, or were, Bill Ryan, Victor Martinez, Rick Doty, Kit Green, and Hal Putoff. Okay, these five people now, they're involved, you would say, in a plot or scheme to spread the Serpo information? No, not necessarily. They, were, uh, they came together um, to research the information that the anonymous poster was sending to Victor originally. They came together to analyze that information. Now, I'll tell you, one thing I had noticed when I read the Serpo summary posted on the Project Serpo website, a large part of it read to me like it was written by a preteen, a young yeah, child, yeah. a young child who was just developing his writing skills. Maybe he's 10, 11 or 12 years old. And his outlook, the way they talk about bathroom functions, they dwell on it. And the naivete about sexual functions that reads of a young child. Are we saying that Richard Doty produced that documentation as well? 
Um, Maybe the, his child or something. <laughs> the so-called diaries uh, or, the, or the logs um, where all that information is contained. That side of it, I'm not sure it, whether Doty wrote that or he got somebody else to write it or somebody else had written it. Um, but I, I do agree with you. It's, um, it's very childlike, um, a lot of the phraseology used. Um, it just doesn't sound like something an adult would write. I do agree yeah. with that. Yeah. I'm also not saying that it's solely down to Rick Doty. I don't believe he's done all this on his own. I believe there is someone, and we, we do believe we know who that someone is, but we're not prepared to say just yet who, who that person is um, but we do believe it was Rick Doty working together with someone to create this okay this is getting to be a complicated plot so let's ask the question yeah. all right Rick Doty and his compatriots known and unknown created this project Serpo stuff now yeah. a lot of that stuff is easily debunked even if you didn't know who was responsible a lot of that stuff is easily debunked a lot of that stuff is suspect so what is the goal? Are they trying to create something to build a best-selling book or just confuse everybody or, or simply at the end of the day, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, they have a few extra cocktails and laugh up their sleeves about it? What's going on? What's the motivation? It could be all of that. It yeah, but what do you think? What do you think the motivation is? Uh, one of the motivations could be to help promote Bob Collins' book, Exempt from Disclosure. <laughs> Because while Bob doesn't support the Serpo story, he, ha he has been very, very active with the Serpo story and turning things around to support the conclusions and ideas presented in his book, Exempt from Disclosure. That is one possible theory, that this could have been done to try and help it along, hmm. to help it gain a to notoriety. <laughs> notoriety. Okay, yeah. well, that's certainly a word. Okay, now, as far as I know, Exempt from Disclosure has been kind of a, a non-starter in terms of successful books, and it doesn't stay yeah. on the cover. It doesn't flash on the cover the truth about Project Serpo. This is not no, something that seems to be emphasized in the book. So I think there's there's only two pages devoted to the entire book that speak right. about Project Serpo. Okay, so then I question the motivation here. Why would you think then that maybe this was done to promote this book if the book is not trying to, as they say, harness that particular controversy and provide information about it. Uh, basically along the lines of uh, where Bob Collins says a lot of the Project Serpo information is untrue. It's false and you'll get the true story and exempt from disclosure. It's what you see uh, from a lot of his emails. You know, if you want the real story, then you know, read the book. Well, unfortunately, we've looked at that book and uh, there's just not a lot of coherent stuff there. That's right, uh, yeah. Uh, it's just not. It's not. A, it's not a very well written book. It's not a well presented book, and uh, it, it just. It doesn't really. Uh, to me, I've read it. It doesn't really give me any information that I didn't already have. Yeah. Hadn't already filtered through. Yeah. Unfortunately. That, uh, to be honest, that's the same with the Project Serpo story. Apart from the actual exchange program itself, all of the details have been out in the public domain for years. Hmm. Even uh, going down to specific details. If you remember the um, the EBE uh, who survived, it was alleged in the Serpo story that he was a mechanic. Uh, if you do a Google search on Usenet for EBE and mechanic, you'll see that Bob Collins has been talking about that uh, since I think the early 90s or the late 80s, definitely the early 90s, uh, where there was a story circulating in the, on the uh, on Usenet 
um, that discussed the very same thing. That there was a survivor from the crash at Roswell. He was a mechanic. Blah blah blah. There's a lot of details like that that, um, that marry up with the Project Serpo story, and these are years old. Right. So they were and tapping the stuff that was already floating around, basically. That was already there. Yeah. Yeah. That they already had. I suppose you could call it a database of information to build the story around, right. and then just take the scenes from Close Encounters of the Third Kind and call it an exchange program. So, Stephen, you said originally that you guys started a reality uncovered not with this situation in mind, not with this case yeah. in mind, but really trying to get get an understanding of the reality of the UFO situation. Are you guys interested in the bigger paranormal field? Yeah, yeah. If there's something that can be fantastic claims that can be investigated then you know we'll, we'll look into anything well is there a specific situation that motivated you to do this do you is there a specific case that you guys do find compelling that you want to know more about i wouldn't say there is at the moment no but because really? that is because we have been concentrating on project serpa that's only for that reason i mean what the, the thing we do want to find out is if is there any truth to the assertion that et is out there and has made contact that's what we want to find out Right. That's, that's the ultimate goal, I suppose, of the investigation. Whereas at the moment, we haven't really found anything solid, anything concrete, anything that where you could say without a doubt, yeah, that's proof that uh, something has happened. Well, it sounds like you got stuck here in the Serpo loop. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. Visit our website, theparacast.com. Check old episodes of the show. You're also invited to participate in our message boards. We're talking to Stephen Broadbent, one of the forces behind the realityuncovered.com website. And so far, just to be honest about it, you have been essentially a one-trick pony about this, which is you mm -hmm. have covered projects. Serpo and the apparent hoax behind the Project Serpo episode. So yes. now do you think having done all this work, Stephen, 
You've done yeah. a lot of work. You've got these nine and a half parts covering Project Serpo and your reasons for concluding that it is a hoax and who was responsible for the hoax. Now, do you think that maybe you're giving it a little bit more attention than it might otherwise deserve? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And we're, we're familiar with that. this whole situation. Yeah. I mean, yes. I've heard that um, as well. a number of times before. And there is some truth to that. Mm. Um, but I can't, I can't just let it go. When you know something is BS... And you do leave it alone for a couple of weeks, and then you see that these people start trying to promote it again. Yeah. It's, it's galling. It really is galling that they think, okay, the coast is clear, let's carry on. I don't like seeing people taken advantage of. Right. Uh, and I know Ryan, uh, Ryan is the same. I mean, one of the things with, with this whole ufology field is a hell of a lot of people do believe in the reality of E.T., and a hell of a lot of people also believe they've been abducted. And a hell of a lot of these people become ill as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And this type of story, which in my mind is clearly a hoax, but also in the mind of people who have actually looked at um, our investigation results, um, it's clearly a hoax. To carry on promoting it as, no, this is actually real, this, this actually happened, and taking everything into account, what Project Serpo is, with um, um, cloning and everything else, um, it just makes some people scared, I suppose. It makes them ill people who are predisposed to believing that type of thing in the first place right that's, that's why we that's why we do carry on but there I don't is like a, seeing, I don't like seeing the bad guys win I suppose is the uh, is the ultimate yeah, reason yeah but uh, you know and this is something we've dealt with here on the show Stephen with uh, another very long running UFO hoax case that we've debunked other people have debunked Billy Meyer uh, you said it not me we didn't even uh, utter the the M word I, yeah. I can't even at this point I am so sick of the situation the mm. incredible amount of attention that's been paid to it given what I consider to be the the shakiest of quote-unquote evidence. But I I really believe ultimately that there is always going to be some group of people that believe in this crap, and there's no way to stop them. And this is what you get when you have freedom of thought. And it gets to the point where you say, all right, look, these people are going to occupy a certain amount of attention. It it looks like they're in it for the attention, to some extent some money. All right, let them play in their sandbox. Some of us want to try to find some real honest truth behind this stuff when you get involved in trying to squelch the morons there's no way to do it and essentially you get sucked into their game and that takes away energy effort and resources to look at legitimate cases and in essence when these people these charlatan engage you to that extent effectively you're letting them win yeah yeah and and it's almost like you have to rise above it. And this is, as I said, uh, you know we've we've dealt with this on our show with this with this ridiculous case that it's been debunked ten times to ten ways to Sunday, yeah, and that's and right, that's yeah. it. And so you know, but these people are really into negative attention. Yeah. They're they're starved for any kind of recognition, and even trying to in, it, debate them, it's it's a losing scenario. I yeah. an example of that, just a specific example. Yeah. David spent a lot of his personal time analyzing a photograph of a specific case, the M case. Okay, yeah. and he posted a set of photos on our thepowercast.com message forums with a detailed analysis. Now, people pay David to do this kind of work, so he was doing this free on his own free time, and we had someone who claimed to represent that camp on the show 
And we kept hitting him with the same question, and he couldn't answer it, which is, do you see anything wrong in this analysis that this photo is a fake? We did the same thing on the message boards. There have been nearly 700 messages on this one subject, so it's kind of gotten the traction that Project Serpo has gotten, except that this particular controversy has gone on for, I think, maybe 25 or 30 years now, and they couldn't come up with a single argument against what David did. Another one of our guests, Jeff Fritzman, also created photographs that are as good or better than the ones that this particular camp had. And again, they didn't have an answer. They changed the subject. That's the way you do it. That's what they always do. Ah, right. He who shall not be named registered on my forum. Um, But he didn't last long. It was a few days because I was involved in the above top secret um, discussion with him. Um, More on the periphery. Uh, But Jeff Ritzman was uh, posting a lot of interesting information on that, information I've not uh, come across before because I've, I've never really paid any attention to the Maya case before because it seemed it seemed ridiculous, to be honest. Well, you see, there's so many sightings out there, so many unusual cases. Would yeah. it not be more positive to say, let's certainly give these cases their due, and when they need to be exposed, we expose them, as yeah. we're trying to do, of course, with the Serpo case. But now, yeah. having done that, shouldn't you also consider being positive and saying, okay, folks, this is what's going on, but there are real things happening too. Because if you concentrate on the hoaxes, people will just say, well, it's all a hoax, forget about it, let me get back to my work. There are so many strange things happening, and certainly David has had some unusual experiences. I've met many, many people through the years who have had very, very unusual UFO and general encounters in the paranormal. And we need to understand what's going on there, but if we spend so much of our time dealing with the hoaxes, the only thing you do is you leave people with the impression that it's all a hoax and it's not a hoax. Yeah, yeah. No, I would the agree both, with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Serpo is not the only thing we're looking at at the moment. As a result of Project Serpo, there's a number of other things tied in with Serpo but not intrinsically involved with it. For example, is there a government cover up? And a lot of people we've spoken to with ties to the government have told us that they've seen they've seen footage they've seen um, video film of aliens of crashed discs they've seen documents or they've read documents and in every case they said they couldn't say as a result of seeing that that, that what they saw was real but they were shown it for a reason mm-hmm. and what's the reason they were shown that type of material because a lot of people in the, say in the government at a lower level or in the military, if they see information like that, they're automatically going to assume it's, it's, it's real. But people higher up that food chain, I suppose, they then start to question, why have I been shown that? And that's the thing, that's one of the things we're looking at at the moment, because there is one particular person we've been speaking to who has asserted that. Um, the type of information he's had access to, yeah. all kinds of information. And he said but he cannot say whether that was real or not. In fact, he suspects that it's not real, but he must have been shown it for a reason. And it's, it, what is the reason? What is the reasoning behind, uh, behind making people believe in a reality of ET contact? This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. If you need to contact us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. Visit our website, theparacast.com. Check out past episodes of the show or participate in our message forums. We're talking to Stephen Broadbent, one of the people behind the realityuncovered.com website, which is linked to at our site. He has been doing a lot of work on the project Servo Claim, but now you're talking about another case. Can you tell us the name of the person that you've been in touch with yet? No, not at the moment. Okay. Um, because you probably wouldn't speak to us anymore if I did that. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, I was just going to say it's not just one person. It's a, it's a couple of people we're talking to. Okay. Ultimately, and these two people don't appear to like each other either, so that's uh, another well, reason we have to be careful. Well, well see, that's the UFO field. Yeah. Right. And the problem is that what we should be talking about are cases and facts and not people. As long as we focus this field on discussing personalities, then essentially we're never going to get anyone. We have yeah. to talk about realities. We have to talk about things that we can actually nail down. And I'll say this as someone who has had multiple UFO experiences in my life, I've never pretended or claimed to have any answers about the origins of these things. I mm. just know that I've seen things that clearly were not manufactured by current human technology. That's what yeah. I know. I don't know anything else about these things in reality. I have my suspicions about them. I have my theories, but they're just that. They're suspicions and theories, and I really think that as long as people are so focused on the goofy personalities in this field, then it's there's never going to be any real uh, progress made. That This is just going to become mudslinging, uh, psychosis, television. This is not... This is like a bad reality TV show, and the thing is that ultimately we're talking about a topic which should be of interest to a lot of people, hmm. and, uh, and, and it's the, one of those things that I would love to have some kind of a real answer as to what's really going on with these phenomena, and I'm not interested in what people believe. I want yeah. to understand what the truth is. That's just me, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would agree with you. I mean, that's that's the thing we want. We want the truth. Um, we want to see what that truth is. We want to see why certain things are being done to make us believe one thing. Yeah. What's that steering us away from? What's that truth that we're right. not privy to, that we're not allowed to know? And who right. makes that decision that we're not allowed to know yeah. uh, what that truth is? Well, I think in general, at this point, the concern I have, and I think David shares it with me, is that this concern over the personalities and the hoaxes and everything, we all have only so much time in the day to get yeah. things done, to get work done. And if you spend all your time dealing with this nonsense, well, you don't have that much time to deal with what might be the authentic cases. And that raises the larger question would be that, of course, if the government wanted to muddy up the waters, would the government spread all this disinformation, whether Richard Doty or whatever? And mm. people still feel, I think, that he might be on the government's payroll. By the way, we did, ladies and gentlemen, ask Richard Doty to come on the PowerCast sometime. Time. Yeah. He said no in rather strong, emphatic terms. I have to say, though, that it's always possible that he had some personal problem. That's what I heard. So that might be the issue. David, we're just about running out. Okay, so at realityuncovered.com, what are you planning to do in the near term? Further work on Serpo, or are you finished with that, and now is the time to move on? At the moment, we're looking into the stories we've heard that have come out as a result of Project Serpa, as a result of the conversations we've had with people who have also been looking into Serpa uh, in the background, people who have not uh, come into the public. They've, they've told us certain things 
um, certain stories which are extremely interesting and they're, they're the stories that we're, we're going to be focusing on at the moment. Are these stories that you feel might be true? I feel there might be some truth to them but what that truth is um, we just don't know at the moment. We don't know whether we're being played or whether there is there is something uh, that contains truth uh, behind it. Not Serpo, but the uh, some other things. Now, in general here, in terms of UFOs, what's your background here? What is your professional background? Do you have a day job? I hope you do. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm an IT technician. Okay. I install networks, that type of thing. Which certainly yeah. helped you in trying to find out who wrote those letters. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people have come out and said, you know, it, it, there's no way of telling, but th there are ways of telling. <clears throat> you don't just look at the header in an email program. You, you can open up the uh, the full email, for example, in a hex editor, and really get at the core the email to see if something's been tampered with, to see if uh, something's been inserted. And that's not been the case in the SERPO emails. Uh -huh. So this is more transparent. They aren't really making a concerted effort to hide their tracks. And maybe they are not IT people, and therefore they don't expect to have to do that. That's right, yeah. I think originally that Rick obviously thought if he uses a web-based email client, um, they won't be able to tell that it's come from his computer. That was a wrong assumption to make. If he'd have used AOL or Gmail, he would have had more success because um, they don't insert the originating IP address into the header. Uh, and also the fact that Victor has web TV. The anonymous source actually asked Victor to delete all of the emails he'd been sent um, because those at the DIA were onto him and he needed to delete all of those emails. <laughs> Um, otherwise, he'd be caught, and uh, Victor would be caught. But what the problem was there is Victor had already said, how come all your IP addresses trace back to Rick Doty? The same with the Paul McGovern emails. That's when he realized Victor had sent the emails to other people who could trace the IP addresses and then asked Victor to delete everything he had. So there would be no proof left, but uh, the proof was there. I'll tell you something. We have it. invited Victor Martinez to join us on the PowerCast in a future episode. I'd be very curious to see what he has to say. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on the PowerCast. I'll remind our listeners, if you go to realityuncovered.com, you can learn about the work of Stephen Broadbent and his fellow co-workers. Again, thank you for joining us on the PowerCast. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. So I don't know. Is this mm. a one-trick pony or what? I do think they did a commendable effort in exposing Rick Doty as the possible perpetrator behind the Project Serpo event. But I'm, I kind of think there are more people involved. It's not just Rick Doty unless he's learned how to write like a 10-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always more than one person. You, it, it, it's really important, though, to find the sort of the key center pivot and I think that a lot of us felt that Doty was that key center pivot even before these guys did their research. He just, this Doty character has such a shady history in this field. You look at this stuff, you look at him, and what you come back with is that this guy must be paid by the government to spread this information. I, I really, I'm at a point with what I know about him, I'm willing to bet money on that, that, that he is on salary to basically push BS out into the field, to muddy stuff up. I think that's all that the Serpo documentation really is. It's an attempt to just basically further marginalize and polarize people who are trying to do real research. It's, it's, it's kind of sad. I agree with you. I think that they did a decent job painting a lot of this on Doty, but I don't know. There's still something missing here. 
Indeed. I don't think they look at the overall picture. I don't think they focus on the overall picture. And then, without going into details, some of the work that Stephen Broadbent and his friends are doing has already come under personal attack. And I just don't want to go there, but I'll just tell you that. The typical of what happens in the UFO field, typical gossip mongering. I don't like it. I think, ladies and gentlemen, you'll like our next guest. His name is Nicholas Redfern. He's written several books on UFOs and the paranormal, and he has some interesting things to say, one of which is that caution. UFOs may be dangerous to your health. (laughs) They certainly are dangerous to our health, but okay. That's coming up next (laughs) on the Paracast. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. So, Nick, how did you first get involved in this crazy UFO business? Well, I've never actually had a personal sighting myself at all. Um, What happened was that my father worked in the British Royal Air Force, and in the early 1950s, he was involved in several UFO incidents himself. He worked on radar and was involved in the tracking of several UFOs over the North Sea. What happened was that radar operators on the east coast of England tracked incoming unknown targets approaching the British coastline very, very rapidly. The first thought, this being the height of the Cold War in 52, that it was the Russians, even though these things seemed to be displaying manoeuvres and speeds that would far outweigh anything that you know the Russians or the Americans or the British were working on. And so aircraft were scrambled to intercept these things. Pilots reported seeing strange lights in the distance, couldn't get close to them, and it was almost as if the the UFOs are playing kind of a game of cat and mouse with the air crews, zipping in and in front of them and behind them, etc. Well, this occurred over the course of several nights, and on each occasion the aircraft were forced to return to base, literally because they were low on fuel. They'd stayed up there so long and just could not intercept these things. Several days later, um, a team of intelligence personnel came from the Air Ministry of London swore everybody to secrecy, reminded them that they'd signed the British government's Official Secrets Act, confiscated the radar tapes, you know, you won't talk to your family, your friends or the press about this. And my father didn't say anything about it until about 1978 when, when he related the facts to me. And I was, I was only about 14 at the time then, 13, 14 or 15. And, you know, at that age, my only involvement in the subject, I guess, was buying books and magazines and things like that and just becoming acquainted with the subject and trying to learn more about it. 
after I finished my education, I began working on a, um, a magazine called Zero in England, which was a, a music magazine, and I enjoyed doing the writing on that. And I, then I thought, well, why not try and combine the writing that I enjoy with the hobby of the UFO subject and, and combine the two and, and, you know, make it a hobby, but also, you know, see if I could make it my career as well. Um, you know, rather than have to be sort of a slave to the nine-to-five world. Um, so that's what I did, and the, you know, I, I wanted to try and put something new out for people that nobody had sort of done before. And this was early 1990s, and coincidentally, it was in this period that the, gov the British government began releasing a number of files on UFOs that it had put together from the 40s to the 60s. And these files hadn't really been seen before, so what I did was to go to the British National Archive just outside London and go through all these records and collate them into a book which was published in 97 called A Covert Agenda. And this essentially was a study of all the declassified files that the government had made available at that time. And, and this includes uh, reports from, highly credible reports from pilots who said they'd seen UFOs in British airspace, in some cases very large ones, where they'd been independently tracked on radar, where police officers out late at night had seen things coming down on on roads and in fields and vehicle interference cases where people were driving along stretches of road late at night and the car engines just failed in the vicinity of a UFO. So there was a good body of evidence and I put this information into the book really so people could see the extent to which the the British government was interested and was investigating these things and from there you know I've just tried to develop it further. I did a, a follow-up book called The FBI Files which was a study of uh, the FBI's declassified UFO files, which cover everything from animal mutilations to men in black reports to the contactees of people like George Adamski and George Van Tassel and straightforward UFO sightings. Um, and then that was followed up in 2000 by Cosmic Crashes. Cosmic Crashes was a first-time look at so-called British Roswell's accounts and claims that UFOs have crashed to Earth in Britain. And there are probably about six or seven reports on file that seem to have some sort of evidence to them. You know, we, we're not able to throw these cases out. They don't seem to be hoaxes or rumours and where something really did seem to occur. One of the, the strongest ones I investigated was a case in central England where some sort of small triangular shaped object had come down in a forest in 1964. And this case had numerous witnesses, various testimonies, um, and even it seemed some sort of official surveillance of the main witnesses to see who was talking to who. Even to this day there seems to be aspects of secrecy surrounding the case and that was one more than any other that really convinced me if you like that these things possibly had really crashed to earth. Strange Secrets, that was a book that came out in 2003 which addressed um, reports of among other things Foo Fighter reports in the Second World War that had been investigated by the British and US governments and also crop circle reports that have been investigated by Britain's MI5 in the in the Second World War, when crop circles actually been found in fields across Europe. So and crop circles are not just mischievous pranks. Let yep. me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to author Nicholas Redfern at the fourth annual Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas. And Nicholas is going to talk about a new book and some new stuff that he alluded to during his presentation in a few moments, but 
I want to go back to this study you did where you mentioned some of the UFO contactees. Now, it's generally considered that Dan Fry, George Adamski were largely hoaxes, etc., etc. What was your perception? As far as people like George Adamski, Dan Fry, George Van Tassel, you're quite correct in saying that a lot of people just dismiss these people as either hoaxes or fantasists or somewhere in between the two. My personal feeling is that I'm not so sure. I think it is possible that maybe some of them did have initial encounters, if you like, of some sort. Now, whether you know it was with aliens or whether it was some sort of you know higher intelligence that we don't fully understand that manifested itself in a way that appeared like aliens. That's one interesting theory that's been put forward about the contactees is that maybe you know the the alien intelligence made itself appear or manifested in a fashion that was acceptable and not too frightening for the people of the day and that they didn't really see you know the way they actually looked kind of like a, a hypnosis if you like i think it's interesting that a lot of the initial experiences of people like van tassel and adamski reportedly occurred out in the desert you know and the, these ha these cases have, have aspects and correlations of reports that classic encounters throughout the centuries with higher entities you know in, in remote locations where they have life-changing experiences. I do wonder if possibly some of the contactees had initial experiences which then dried up and then they elaborated upon those later. Right, so now you raise a larger question which mm -hmm. is something I've talked about, which is the contactees, or some of them, have a real encounter. But then there's maybe a public demand mm -hmm. or an expectation amongst their followers of additional experiences. So they come up with the photographs. They come up mm -hmm. with additional contacts. So whereas a genuine event may have precipitated all this mm -hmm. over time, it's intermingled with all the fake, mm -hmm. the fraudulent claims, and it gets just a little bit muddied. Mm -hmm. That's the problem, uh, Gene, is that when you investigate these cases of things like contactees which are highly controversial and you find possibly you know initial good information but then afterwards the contactee crosses the line and something happens whereby there is this clamor for more information they don't have it so what do they do I'm not saying in every case but you know I think there is evidence in certain ones that trickery was involved but unfortunately what happens then is that they only have to you know the moment that you lie or cross the line once it automatically negates everything you've ever said before because how can you know once a liar people are going to say always a liar that isn't necessarily the case it's just that when it happens you know it certainly does put all the previous information in a bad light and I think that's possibly why some of the contactees get a bad rap is purely and simply because the claims got more and more outrageous as time went on to the point where they were seen as ridiculous by a lot of UFO researchers in the 50s and 60s but the initial encounters actually sounded quite plausible you know just an object coming down in the desert and some sort of face-to-face -face contact taking place well of course George Adamski did not meet somebody from Venus
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Nicholas Redfern, author of a number of books, including A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, and a lot of other books that we'll be talking about in a moment, including those Three Men Seeking Monsters. Now, I need to ask you about Three Men Seeking Monsters. Are we talking about the three men in black or what? Mm-hmm. Here? No, that's actually me and two friends back in England. Um, I run the UF's office of an organized a british-based organization called the center for forty and zoology which is run by two friends of mine john downs and richard freeman who's a professional zoologist back in england and the center for forty and zoology investigates as you can probably guess from the name strange animals like bigfoot the yeti lake monster sea serpents and as i said i run the u.s office and we've spent a lot of time investigating weird creatures around the world john and i went to puerto rico last year 2004 looking for the the chupacabras Uh, Richard recently came back from the Gambia looking for strange creatures out there and the book Three Men Seeking Monsters is basically a summary of various cases investigated by us throughout the years um, of weird animals kind of like an on the road diary Mm. so what is your perception of all this having investigated all that stuff and we'll get back to the UFO material Mm. in a moment what's your perception about a lot of these creatures I think we can broadly fit them into several categories I think there are those animals that science believes to be extinct and that possibly aren't extinct that may account for some sightings of things like sea serpents or you know giant lizards and reptiles in 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 the remoter and deeper jungles of the world possibly science thought you know became extinct thousands of years ago one classic example is a huge monitor lizard that used to exist in australia called megalania which grew up to about 30 feet in length and became extinct thousands of years ago but people occasionally still report sightings now so i think you have that category i think there's probably also more likely in the deeper oceans animals that science simply hasn't found yet and that they probably account for some sightings they're also out of place animals for example you have the big cats in england a lot of people see panthers pumas leopards now needless to say none of these animals are indigenous to the british isles yet people see them and one of the most popular theories is that people who've had private zoos and kept these animals you know maybe they've escaped and bred in the wild over the years and that's what people are now seeing but in saying that there's also another category where it's almost as if some of these creatures aren't real animals if they have paranormal overtones to them a lot of cryptozoologists aren't actually very happy about this theory it's not popular with them because they want it all to be flesh and blood animals but you do get a lot of correlations between ufos and bigfoot reports in texas for example there's sightings of a bigfoot like creature in an area called the big thicket a large forest in east texas and that's also associated with so-called ghost light sightings but again it suggests that there are two or three weird paranormal phenomena all interlinked and you know one of the theories is that many of these creatures that people see are kind of like a paranormal thing not a physical animal which accounts for them never actually being captured or caught and, and camera films jamming and things like that so i think there are four or five different categories rather than just lumping it all under you know cryptozoology well what about the ufo angle is there a ufo related angle with any of these creatures um, when i say a ufo related angle i think it's just that weird sightings of different things seem to be linked together in what have become known as window areas you know certain parts of the world that seem to attract a whole range of weird phenomena would you regard skinwalker ranch as one of those particular areas yeah exactly something like the skinwalker ranch or 
you know, things like Point Pleasant in the Mothman mystery, you know, where you had men in black reports, you had this weird gargoyle winged thing, the Mothman, um, UFO encounters, all sorts of strange things going on. And you have other places around the world that have become known as these window areas. And I think that, you know, some people have suggested the portals or openings to other dimensions, which is an interesting theory that possibly, you know, the aliens that we think are coming from this star system or that star system and the Bigfoot creatures, etc., are all, you know, coming from here or coming from there or hiding out in the woods. Maybe they actually coexist or coexist with us in parallel dimensions. And these flap areas, these window areas, are where they're able to traverse the one dimension to another and then back again which might explain how these things seem to come and go and then you know there's a huge wave of sightings of Bigfoot or in one area and then they suddenly stop maybe it's because the creature goes back through the portal where it came from this portal what is it a, a hole or rip in the fabric mm. of space what are we talking about here well that's that's obviously one of the interesting things and um, you know to discuss it fully you would need a full understanding of science and knowledge and it covers areas like quantum physics and you know interdimensional issues etc i think the best i can say is that if it can be proven then it would explain a lot of things it would explain the the transient nature of the phenomenon how it comes and goes how these things seem to be in one area at one point whether it's bigfoot or ufos and then they're gone rather than you know simply staying around for years and years at a time i think if we could understand the physics of it then possibly we would have a lot of the answers that to this aspect of the mystery. I think the problem is that mainstream scientists won't touch this the research because they're fearful of their reputations being tainted and so it's then left up to the researchers who obviously good in terms of you know capturing witness testimony and interviewing people but not necessarily first-class scientists so it progresses I think at a, a lower rate than it could do if we could get the scientific community involved in trying to determine what these portals and you know dimensional gateways might be and, and the implications of all this what about the implications of the so-called men in black the people who seem to be seen in connection with UFO and or paranormal events who mm. sometimes go to people and say we're from the government and it's not good idea for mm. you to talk about that. What about these people? Mm. Well, in my latest book, On the Trail of the Source of Spies, one of the things that I talk about, there's a whole chapter in the book on Men in Black Reports, and I think there's two things going on. I think there's a covert data collection agency buried deep within US intelligence and British intelligence definitely that covertly goes out and investigates UFO sightings and actively prevents this information getting out and on occasion these people have there's no doubt warned people not to talk about UFO encounters and I think they use the men in black mythology you know rather than having somebody go out in full Air Force uniform actually have them dress up in black clothing black hats black sunglasses suit tie because then if the witness talks about it with the friends or the media they're going to get laughed at and I think that acts as a good camouflage so I think the government people definitely utilize the mythology of the men in black to hide their own activities however there's also another aspect of the men in black mystery where some of these MIBs are reported almost as looking or identical if you like to, to aliens themselves as if they're kind of disguising themselves to look more human reports of some of the men in black wearing dark wigs or wearing makeup to make the white skin look more pink colored I guess and not being fully acquainted with our customs and, and ways of eating and drinking etc and asking strange questions if they're not 
not really sure what's going on. And if these accounts can be believed, and I think there's enough records on file to suggest that there is there is something to this, I think we do have two angles to the Men in Black mystery. We have the government angle, and we have perhaps semi-human looking aliens that are trying to subtly pass themselves off in our society, you know, with upturned collars and pulled down hats and sunglasses and mingle among us. Um, you know, maybe at a, at a glance they're close enough to where they could, in appearance, to actually get away with it. Well, maybe in San Francisco or New York, a person is dressed a little bit weird. <laughs> Nobody will notice the difference. That's right, yeah. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Nick Redfern. He, what do we call you? A ufologist, a cryptozoologist, yeah. a Fortean? What would you? Fortean is probably better because um, I've written five books on UFOs. Um, one on cryptozoology, one on conspiracies, and have a new one out on celebrity secrets in February. Now, speaking of conspiracies, what type of conspiracies are we talking about here? Well, everything from cover-ups of crop circle information um, to even cover-ups of cryptozoological mysteries, UFOs, life after death. One of the strangest ones that I investigated and, and actually got hold of some materials was a CIA file on their search for the remains of Noah's Ark. The story goes back to the late 40s when a US Air Force spy plane was flying, um, doing a spy mission towards the Soviet Union and flew over Mount Ararat, Turkey and saw what looked like a, a large boat-like structure semi-buried under the ice and various pictures were taken. These pictures have actually now been declassified, they're on the official website of the Defense Intelligence Agency. But the pictures were shared with the CIA, who for some reason took a deep interest in this. And there are rumours and stories about the CIA having launched a kind of Indiana Jones-style expedition to the area to locate the secrets of whatever was contained in, if it was an ark or, as some people think, even a crashed UFO. This was one of the strangest conspiracies, I guess, that I looked into and published a chapter in my book, Strange Secrets, on the, the documents that I got hold of. And, and it quite makes it very clear that the CIA do have these files on Noah's Ark, which they actually call the Ararat Anomaly. That's what it's officially called in the CIA's files. But the big question, again, that we don't have the answer to is why the CIA is so interested. And that, that is the problem with a lot of these conspiracies, is that you can get so far into the government files or get people to speak to you, and then you, you very often just hit this brick wall where people just don't want to talk any further or the files have conveniently vanished or been destroyed. And, you know, that's one of the frustrating things, whether it's UFOs, government conspiracies, you know, anything to do with official secrecy. You know, unfortunately, the government seems to have 
all the skills and powers it needs to ensure that these cases get kept under wraps or you know they keep the mainstream media away from them and we're just left you know toiling on well as far as the government is concerned do they care about people like Nick Redfern or Stanton Friedman or Lauren Coleman or any of the people who explore these mysteries mm -hmm. are they doing anything actively to stop them or they, do they just indulge them that's a good question I think I think unfortunately and it doesn't help my position to say this but I'll be honest with you I think that researchers of UFOs particularly I think there's good evidence I have a book out right now called On the Trail of the Source of Spies which is all about surveillance of UFO researchers there's very good evidence that numerous people in the UFO research community authors lecturers etc have been watched closely by the government but I strongly suspect that action will never really be taken against anyone unless that person has firm hard definitive proof of something you know at the end of the day if researcher John Smith says Roswell happened and then you know researcher John Smith the next day is found dead under suspicious circumstances that would just inevitably draw more attention to the story and I think from the government's perspective it's far better for them to just simply yes take a note of what people are saying but for the most part ignore it or pretend not to be interested uh, because as I said anything that the government does inevitably would draw attention to whatever's going on so I think it would be simply and only in the event that somebody got hold of undeniable evidence then you know you may see action taken against them but until that day that won't happen I don't think but unfortunately it's how do we get hold of the hard evidence the government always seems to get there before we do what about some of these red herrings that seem to come up in the UFO field? I'm thinking in terms of Project Serpo, for example, mm. which is the story that allegedly the military and the aliens had this exchange program mm. where earthlings went to mm. say the reticuli or whatever. What do you think about that stuff? Is that all disinformation? The problem I have with things like Serpo and a lot of these stories is that for the most part they come from whistleblowers. Now you know whistleblowers we only have to look at Deep Throat. Deep Throat turned out to be pretty legitimate but the problem is that when you when you're dealing with whistleblowers and maybe only one or two people or maybe even one that's the only person who knows the name of the whistleblower even the problem is that when the stories get out there it's how do we prove one way or another that it's true when no one else can interview the people that's the problem and I think the problem I have with Serpo isn't so much the information you know the idea that maybe if aliens are coming here maybe there, there would be some sort of exchange program if the government was in direct contact with them that would be plausible and it would make sense but the problem is because it sounds plausible and makes sense doesn't mean it's real but how do we find out if it's real or not when we're not able to interview the whistleblower so we're in this cycle of discussing cases and, ne and, and incidents and stories and never being able to resolve them because we can never get past the story we can never get back to the source and that's why although I have personally worked with a number of whistleblowers I don't like doing that I prefer to work with people who are willing to speak on the record where other people can then go and interview them and we can confirm you know and, and share sport stories swap accounts and see where the truth lies I think whistleblowers are always going to be problematic even if their intentions are sincere you know it, it's and it's never unfortunately going to interest the mainstream media if they're not able to get out there you know all they've got is the word of somebody who said oh I interviewed this person and they told me ABC so that's the biggest problem I have with things like Serpo is the fact that they come from 
from whistleblowers are still hidden in the shadows. Or it could be disinformation. We actually have another guest who we have coming on our show, and he suggests that none other than Richard Doty is responsible for some of this Serpo stuff. And of course, Doty formerly worked for military intelligence and has been blamed from time to time mm. on engaging in disinformation. You have a feeling about that yet? As far as Doty and Serpo is concerned, I've seen these allegations and claims. I don't personally know anything about that. I will say that um, Greg Bishop, who wrote a book last year, Project Beta, which talks about how Paul Benowitz, a scientist in New Mexico, was fed a whole ream of disinformation on UFOs to keep him away from certain secret military projects at Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico, that Doty was heavily involved in that um, disinformation program. So, you know, the idea that somebody involved in a late 1970s, early 80s disinfo program might be involved in a later one isn't implausible. I just don't know anything about his involvement personally with Serpo. I think, as I said, the problem with Serpo is we just don't know enough. And it could be, you know, it, it's just straightforward disinformation to keep people away from investigating other things. You know, let's tie them up and keep them busy investigating something that doesn't exist while the real secrets just keep remaining buried. So how do you separate the wheat from the chaff other than that it comes from a whistleblower? How is the average person who wants to learn about UFOs and he goes on these websites or he buys the magazines and he sees a thousand and one claims and he sees what we call online flame wars, people mm. yelling at one another about different things. How do you separate some fact from all this nonsense? Mm. Well, that, unfortunately, Jane, is the, that you've just described the entire UFO subject. Of course. <laughs> That's what it's like. I mean, you have, you know, even in the UFO community, you have infighting. My view is there's nothing wrong with rational debate, but just saying, oh, you know, this person's stupid, gets us nowhere. You know, let's debate the cases and the, and the information. And I think the UFO research community could benefit from kind of trying to upgrade its image instead of being like a bunch of kids fighting in the sandpit. You know, let's pool all the information and all work on it and see where it leads and put it out for people to see. And that, you know, a lot of the UFO community complain about the scientific community or the media not taking them seriously. And yet, you know, you go online and you just find the research community not taking itself seriously through, you know, just childish tactics or whatever. So I think, you know, we need to be more professional as a community and upgrade our image. And then that, I think, will then have a knock-on process with the media and the scientific community. And if we can get indulge those, get those involved, then we're going to make more progress. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. Check out theparacast.com and check our online forums for lots of fun games and information. And we, of course, make it possible for you to download previous episodes of the show. We're talking to Nick Redfern. We're over in Las Vegas at the fourth annual Crash Retrieval Conference where he's giving a presentation. And you're going to be talking about, in part, viruses from aliens. Now, I, I need to understand this more because, as you remember in the novel by H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, mm -hmm. the aliens were invulnerable except they succumbed to our cold viruses mm -hmm. and that killed them. Now, 
Is this something that's happening in reverse? What are these alien viruses all about that you've been studying? That's exactly what it's about, Gene. The, basically, the last, over the last year, I've been working very closely with Dr. Robert Wood, who's the father of Ryan Wood, who's the organizer of the conference here this weekend. And Robert has uncovered a huge amount of information that suggests that, not in every case, but in some UFO crash incidents, that the, the bodies of the aliens, you know, after a crash, if they've been torn open in the wreckage or whatever, that the body, bodily fluids, blood organs, etc., when the human retrieval teams, the, the quick reaction teams have gone out there to recover the, the crashed objects, and they've come into contact, either direct or even indirect contact with, you know, bodily fluids, materials, etc., that they've come to some fast-acting, very lethal virus that, that is lethal to the human race. And people have suffered, reportedly, massive hemorrhages and, you know, died from profuse blood, you know, pouring from the nose, mouth, ears, practically immediately after these incidents have occurred. You know, a team's got out there and the, and the entire retrieval team has just, you know, dropped down dead. Now, there's no evidence, I would stress, that this is some sort of biological warfare undertaken by the aliens to you know, prevent us from capturing them or anything like that. Although that, that is an interesting theory that's been suggested. I think if this information turns out all to be true, I think it is more something along the lines of H.G. Wells' scenario that there's something in the DNA and makeup of these creatures that is lethal to us. And so I'll be speaking about that and some of the research I've done for Bob and how it, over the course of the last 60 years, probably somewhere in the region of 15 or 20 different accounts seem to fall into this category and how the picture comes together of, of the government coping and realising that there is a biological threat involved in certain, and I would stress only certain, UFO incidents. Well, you say certain. What about Roswell? I mean, supposedly they recovered bodies there. Was there ever any evidence that the people who found these aliens succumbed to some kind of virus? Well, the, the testimony of the people who were there at the time, we don't have that, but Bob has um, been given various Majestic 12 documents that do talk about lethal viruses having been found in the bodies recovered at Roswell and technicians from the Sandia labs succumbing to whatever this virus was. And that's something that Bob's been actively investigating, are these documents and how they tie in with claims of viral activity, etc. I've been kind of doing it more from interviewing people who've made these claims and looking at some of the cases where um, Bob's been focusing on document authentic authentication and, and examination. But collectively, when you put it together, there is admittedly an intriguing story where it's quite clear that as far back as 47 through the early 50s at least, elements of the US government and the military were asking questions about links between UFOs and biological warfare. You know, what lies behind that, what prompted it, could have been some of these viruses reportedly found at UFO crash sites. Now, lethal in the sense of people dying from these viruses? This is what the documents that Bob Wood has found report about scientists who were actually at the crash sites putting the, the bodies into body, rubber body bags or whatever to be taken away, then either directly or maybe an hour or two later starting to feel ill, hemorrhaging, blood coming out of the nose, mouths, ears, eyes, and then literally dying you know, within minutes. Now if that's true, if the documents aren't disinformation, and that of course 
cannot be ruled out at this stage. If that's true, that would arguably be one of the main reasons to initiate a cover-up, not just the fact that aliens exist or that they're coming here, but the fact that they could present a very lethal and serious biological threat to us, although perhaps not directly in terms of doing it deliberately, but just due to the fact that, you know, they've got a different genetic DNA makeup to us, and when the two clash, we come off worse. Now, wouldn't the government, though, want people who investigate these sightings protect themselves in some way? Is there a way to protect themselves by wearing special suits, etc.? Well, that is one of the interesting things, is that in several um, UFO crash retrieval cases, there are reports of the guys going out in full protection gear. Now, in Roswell, for example, there was no evidence of that. You know, it was just military personnel out at the site collecting crash debris or bodies and whatever. But it's in the later cases that we get reports of guys in full suits. Now, that makes me wonder if something happened at some of the first, the earlier cases, where they then began to grasp the idea that, hey, we need contamination suits. That might explain why in, in the years that followed, these procedures were, were used, but they weren't in place initially. All right, this is starting to get very, very significant. But the important thing is here is that how much evidence is there of these mm. deaths caused by apparent encounters with UFOs, UFO mm. beings, etc.? Where's the real story here? Is it just a bunch of claims from people, or is there something you can put your hands on? Mm. Well, I mean, like the, the bigger UFO subject, whether it's abductions, contactees, landing cases, the, with the virus angle, it's pretty much similar to what we have in other aspects of the subject. We have witness testimony, uh, we have whistleblower testimony, we have a number of documents, several of which actually are officially declassified documents. There's one from 1949 where the Air Force was actually correlating the, the frequency of UFO sightings and the frequency of increases in the polio virus in the U.S. population. And that, that's a fact. Those documents are declassified officially. You can go to the National Archives and read them. Um, so somebody was interested in, in tying in outbreaks of diseases in areas where UFOs had been seen. And we have the more specific question documents, the MJ-12 unauthenticated documents that talk about viruses. Now, if we just had the one thing, you know, it would be kind of just a, a fragmentary little story that wasn't going anywhere. But when you collectively put all of this information together, for me at least, it, it suggests the strands of a larger story that requires investigation. And I think really, you know, Bob would agree with, with me, that that's all we're trying to do is investigate what seems to be a highly significant and intriguing body of material that nobody has really dug into before and unified under one cover. And, and Bob's forthcoming book, In Search of the Alien Viruses, will uh, portray all the material we've recovered um, so far. When is this book going to be out? I think in early 2007, so not long. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com, 
They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. At our website, theparacast.com, you can check it out for back episodes of the show or our message boards. Nicholas Redfern joins us today at the Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. And we're talking about his various investigations and right now his studies about potential alien viruses where those who come in contact with alien beings succumb to some kind of infection that can cause death. What about all the people who have been abducted mm. by alien visitors? They're not dying of any strange diseases, are they? No, and it's quite true that in most UFO crash cases, there is no evidence of this virus. It's only, I mean, Ryan Wood, for example, who's written the book Magic Eyes Only, Ryan's book talks about 74 crash cases. Of those crash cases that we know, maybe four or five seem to have evidence of this particularly lethal virus being present. Now, one of the theories that's been put forward is that possibly, you know, we have different types of alien, or that maybe some of these aliens are kind of like a biological robot created to perform certain tasks. And maybe, you know, they've got like a self-destruct mechanism in them in the event that anybody tries to capture them, etc. You know, like a, an alarm clock going off, but in this case the alarm clock is a lethal virus released, you know, to attack the or disable the, the attacker, if you like. Um, that's a possibility that's being put forward. But, I mean, my truthful answer is that I'm not able to explain why this virus has been reported at some crash sites and not at others. All we can really do at this stage is focus on the reports that fall into this category and then try and work out why it seems to be present um, under these circumstances. What about general close encounters where someone comes within close proximity of a UFO? Are they suffering from any kind of disease symptoms? There are reports of people having been made ill, in some cases quite seriously, from close proximity to a UFO. One classic one was the Cash Landrum case of December 1980, when two women and a boy were driving home late at night through Texas and saw this diamond-shaped object hovering over the road or manoeuvring kind of oddly over the road and surrounded by numerous military helicopters. Now, some people have suggested that this was some sort of prototype, possibly nuclear-powered U.S. military test device that had malfunctioned and that this, this was some sort of helicopter quick reaction unit trying to shepherd the, the UFO to a landing, emergency landing site. Other people suggest that it was a real UFO. Uh, regardless of, where, of the origin of the craft, 
the the witnesses involved were actually medically very very seriously affected um, cancer hair loss evidence of radiation poisoning so I mean there are a number of cases from England as well uh, one in one of in the official files in London where a woman was driving home late at night and her car was bathed in this light that enveloped the vehicle and she felt very sick and ill afterwards dizzy vertigo um, just generally unwell so we do get these reports fortunately they're, they're few and far between and that does sometimes make me wonder if the release of these viruses and whatever it is that's affecting us could possibly be done deliberately maybe as a safety mechanism in the event that you know there's been an accident and to try and prevent us getting to the scene or something like that possibly can we say then caution ufos are really dangerous to our health yeah i think we can say i think you know some people may not be happy hearing that they want it all to be love and light and I don't think it is I think there are serious disturbing aspects to the UFO subject and we shouldn't shy away from them we need to investigate every aspect of the phenomenon be it good be it bad be it indifferent and just see where it leads and not just go with a oh you know they're all beautiful space brothers come to save mankind I don't I don't think that's the case at all are we seeing different motivations here from different alien beings different creatures wherever they come from um i think that's possible i mean we've, we haven't seen outright hostility because we're sitting here doing this interview right now so you know the earth hasn't been destroyed equally nobody's come down to cure cancer or save the rainforests you know i think probably they quote the aliens their reasons for being here are probably as selfish as our reasons for the way we exploit the planet ourselves you know I, I don't think for one minute they're here to save the rainforest cure cancer and enlighten us about the universe I think either they use us it's something a medical angle hence the abductions and the cattle mutilations or maybe you know it's elements and chemicals on the earth itself or under the earth in the oceans that attracts them and the fact that we're here is just secondary you know I think it's our egos make us think that if someone's coming to the earth it's obviously to see us but maybe it's something to do with the earth that attracts them and the fact that we're seeing or we see them you know maybe they may even consider that to be slightly indifferent so I think the motivations are probably as selfish as ours are for everything that we do what about the historical interactions with so-called advanced beings the so-called mm. ancient astronauts whatever have you probed into that very much not to any great extent other than reading the literature but I mean one of the observations I would make is you know these sightings of the gods coming down from the sky and imparting knowledge it actually doesn't sound that different to people being abducted onto a UFO and seeing images of you know nuclear destruction and things like this and you know warning people about future ways of mankind or whatever throughout history you know however pe people some people interpret it as gods some people as angels some as, as UFOs and aliens but the fact is throughout thousands of years there's been an interaction between human beings and some sort of higher intelligence where certain people have almost like been chosen and you know their lives have been changed and they follow some path whether it's a religious path or whether it's a you know a path to pursue aliens um, so 
you know, it's, it's all down to our interpretation, I think, of, of what's going on. But I certainly don't rule out at all, you know, the, the ancient astronaut scenario of, of some of these, the gods coming down from the sky and things like that as having a direct UFO correlation. So where do we go from here? It looks like there's more and more interested in these subjects. Looking, for example, at the Crash Retrieval Conference, it was practically a sellout this year. The mm-hmm. crowd was larger than last year, according to the conference sponsors. So more and more people are interested in this sort of thing. But is this something where we're all destined to be sitting here 50 years from now, those of us who are still alive and debating the same issues? Is there a resolution in our future? What do you think? Well, I think there is a resolution, Gene. I think the problem is that with the UFO community, for the most part, we talk to each other, whether it's conferences, lectures, you know, radio shows. We're talking to people that are interested in UFOs. Now, that's great because, you know, we can all talk about it and discuss it and discuss theories and, and, and come to some intriguing answers, hopefully. The problem is, how do we take it further and resolve it at a scientific level or get the media involved? And I think the problem works both ways. We need to get the scientific community involved to answer some of the scientific questions, but they won't get involved because they're fearful of their reputations. You know, they, they won't, they're not brave enough to go out on a limb, unfortunately. If they would do that and we got credible hard scientific people known around the world involved then the media would sit up and take notice and instead of the media just poking fun and making jokes about little green men they would perhaps look at the subject in a balanced rational view and not just debunk it on you know a local national news show or something like that or one of the mainstream channels so i think we need to get the media and the scientific community involved and show them the seriousness of the subject show them don't be afraid about your own reputations just go out on a limb investigate it and let's really get the information out to everybody and i think that will take it to the next level in the old days, we talked about the silence group, allegedly either the government or an uber government, some mm-hmm. kind of in military industrial complex, whatever we want to call it, that was keeping the information mm-hmm. from spreading. So do you think it's even going to be allowed to happen? Do you think the media is going to be allowed to reveal this this truth? That That's one of the problems, you know, is influence over the world's media today and influence over the scientific community. I think, you know, money is a big factor. You know, you have a scientist who, for example, you know, is on a, on a, a university grant or something like that. Let's say, for example, that he or she gets X thousands of dollars, you know, who knows much from a particular military agency each year to research, I don't know, Star Wars weapons, shall we say, for the Defense Department. However, that person is then approached by a UFO researcher to do research. Is it possible that that scientist would be told, you know, by the military, you know, you get involved in this UFO subject, we're going to pull your grant? That is, that's entirely plausible, and I think it's probably the threat, at least, I'm sure, has been put in place. And that would be, you know, a classic example of influencing and bullying the scientific community not to get involved. And I think equally with the media, there are people who, you know, the government would subtly say to them, look, you know, you dare put this story out, and will just destroy your reputation. You're just going to be known as the, the, the former leading award-winning journalist who now chases little green men. And that, you know, you don't actually need to assassinate someone or put the thumbscrews on them. You can just intimate what's going to happen and your, you know, your reputation will be destroyed. In many cases, unfortunately, that is enough to stop anyone 
or a lot of people from taking the you know the next step and that's what we need to try and get past is is try and convince people that you know stand up to these people don't just take you know their word for for what they're telling you you know just get past that veil of secrecy and at least have a bit of gumption and a bit of bravery to to come on board with us and and don't just follow the party line so you sound a bit optimistic about this are you really I am optimistic. I'm optimistic because I know it can be done. I, I'm pessimistic about whether or not the people on the inside who have got the answers are actually brave enough to come out and help us. <laughs> I think the UFO community have got the guts and the balls to do it. I, I'm just not sure if there are enough whistleblowers to help us. And I think that's what we need. We need the people on the inside who can come forward and you know release hard evidence let's see the debris let's see the crash the bodies the material let's see the dna that can be analyzed by an independent community and present it to the world by the way ladies and gentlemen the sound of planes you hear in the background they're not black helicopters <laughs> surrounding this hotel well they just might be well <laughs> okay well we'll start some more paranoia here Thank you for joining us, Nick Redfern. He's Thanks, author Steve. of such books as Strange Secrets, The FBI Files, Three Men, Seeking Monsters, A Covert Agenda, Cosmic Crashes, and the new book is called... On the Trail of the Source of Spies. Thank you very much for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks, Gene. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to me. News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We started our show back in February. You know, something has happened that I could never have believed in all my born days. Did you know we've been nominated for an award? You're kidding. Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. Apparently, there's this uh, blogger, interesting cat who we should think about having on the show, Paul Kimball. And somehow that name rings a couple of bells in my head, but he hosts a thing called the Zorgi Awards. And, as it turns out, someone on our forums alerted us to this. It turns out that the Paracast has been nominated as uh, one of the entries for Best Paranormal Paracast. Hmm. Yeah. So, our listeners, we're hoping, will take the initiative and go over and, hey, vote for us. Because we'd like to win an award of some sort. Any they award. Have, uh, any award. doesn't really matter. But Let me give you an example of the kind of people who are nominated. Best UFO Paranormal Publication Print, 14 Times, UFO Magazine, and Saucer Smear. <laughs> Saucer Smear is on there. That, that's and interesting. And Nick Redfern, who is on this episode, is nominated as Best Ufologist and also Best UFO Paranormal Troublemaker. Troublemaker. Just wow. Just kind of guy, yeah. So we're up against um, the Jerry Pipe, uh, the Jerry P, 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 wasn't that the name of a failed Apple device? <laughs> <laughs> and this other show, which I have to tell you, I've never heard of, Binall of America? What the hell is that? What, who is that? <laughs> 
I don't no know who clue. they are. No clue. We're, we're clearly the best of the shows that's been nominated for Best UFO Podcast. So to our listeners, please, if you enjoy our show, please go over to redstarfilms.blogspot.com, redstarfilms.blogspot.com, and vote for your favorite podcast, The Paracast. We'd appreciate it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.